Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, Episode 3, The State of the Union is Boring. I'm your host, Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, and fancy new owner of an encrypted telephone number. Ooh, ooh, yes, ooh Jim Comey would disapprove. Come get me, Jim. And, and he's, he's going to swoop down in the middle of the night, seize your phone, That's right. and, and force Apple to decrypt it. I'm, I'm going dark. America. I know. This phone and my encrypted number, we are going dark against America. Right here. Shane me, Harris going dark before your eyes. Call me. It's a Nebraska area code, by the way. I got to choose, and I thought that was like the most exotic of the things the, I was offered. The dark underbelly of the conspiracy to destroy totally. America is in Nebraska. Obviously. Have Who you did? been to Nebraska <laughs> lately? Uh, I am joined, as always, uh, by my friends Tamara Kaufman Wittis, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, excuse me, of the Brookings Institution and noted broadsword enthusiast. Absolutely. You're going to bring the broadsword one day, right? Uh, if I must. Okay. Only if I can wield it. May I wield it? You should. I think you should probably wield it at home. You know, I, more as a tool I, of persuasion. Well, why don't you come over? I'll show you how I wield <laughs> okay, it. Okay. Well, we'll encrypt that conversation. <laughs> I'm also joined by uh, Ben Wittes of the Wittes Household and the Brookings Institution, and this week, um, virus carrier. Ben is feeling a little under the weather today. I am. So if you hear him talking, just he's, he's feeling a little sick. He needs some chicken soup or something. Uh, I had some chicken soup, and I gotta say, chicken soup is a wonderful thing. And at, after it, I still had uh, whatever bug I'm carrying. Yeah, but you felt better probably. I did. Okay. Uh, this week uh, on the show, uh, fighting radical Islam, it is much harder than we think. The NSA sort of defends itself against some of its critics, uh, including me. I would put myself in this camp. Uh, and should journalists allow their terrorist sources to remain anonymous? But before we get to that, uh, which is going to be this week's wordplay, um, the State of the Union was this week. And I think we can all agree it was uh, kind of a big snore. Yeah? Yeah. Really, I didn't even what, watch it. What did you say? Well, it was all leaked out beforehand. You didn't need to watch it. This so I, d- I didn't watch it. I no. never watched the State yeah. of the Union. I, I read it. It mm-hmm. takes about five minutes right. to read. It takes about two hours to watch. Yeah. And um, I think what I learned was that the president still wants to close Guantanamo, wants to wage war while ending wars, and you know wants you to remember that he really cares about NSA reform uh, and all of that comes after a lot of stuff about middle middle class economics and um, you know it's all crowded into this relatively brief discussion in the second half of the speech. Mm-hmm. You know foreign policy is always shortchanged in the state of the union but I guess I would say there was even less content on foreign policy this year than I think there's been almost any other year of the Obama presidency and none of it was new. Is that, is that just because there's new. no good news on foreign policy for the report? <laughs> I think it's also because 
there aren't that many things you can start, you know, six years in and finish before you leave. And so this is not the time for a bold new initiative. This is about managing messy problems. Yeah. I thought it was interesting in his, his remarks in December at his press conference at the end of the year before we went on vacation. He talked about this being the fourth quarter of his presidency and things get interesting in the fourth quarter. And yet it doesn't sound like they're going to get interesting. It sounds like they're <laughs> going to be relatively like the third quarter. So, yeah. I think the this is an administration in the national security space that came in with big, bold plans. Almost all those big, bold plans have to one degree or another um made them look silly for being quite as big and bold as they were. And the lesson that they've learned from it, and I give them credit for this, the lesson that they've learned for them from this is muddle through. We and do small things. We do we and we don't make stupid mistakes, yeah. right? And so they are treading softly and they're not yelling about it and uh, some of them are going to work and some of them are not going to work, but it's not going to be the headlines. I think the, the May 2013 National uh, Defense University speech is probably the last time you're going to see this president. Uh, I would hope it would be the last time you see this president give a sort of, uh, this is my broad vision for the sort of state of counterterrorism address. And I, I think he's finally outgrown that a little bit. Yeah, I was at a dinner party last night with some former State Department people, and it was sort of this, the consensus seemed to be, and of course we were not watching the State of the Union, we were having a nice time together, that <clears throat> there was a lot of disappointment in what he was unable to do, because a lot of people there really believed in him and had great hopes and ambitions. And yet at the same time, a lot of appreciation for the what I think he would call the don't do stupid shit approach and, and sort of keeping us out of trying to keep us out of even more entanglements, um, or at least that's how they, they were sort of seeing it. Um, you know, it was interesting to me that most people at the table, at the table seem to think that not bombing Syria earlier was potentially a missed opportunity, but not necessarily something we should have gotten into anyway. So it was kind of, you know what I mean? It's just sort of this balance of feeling underwhelmed on the one hand, but kind of glad it's not worse than it could be. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I think that reflects the public mood, and I actually think that, to a large degree, um, the administration has judged public opinion on this stuff very accurately. The public doesn't want foreign policy to come and bite us, but they also don't want us to get entangled. So they want to be safe uh, as cheaply as possible. And I, if I had to sum up the administration's foreign policy vision as articulated last night in a single phrase, it's, we're not invading any more countries. Mm -hmm. I think people are happy about that. And I think Joe Biden feels vindicated, right? I mean, isn't this sort of the Biden strategy from some years ago when we talked about, you know, managing conflict of the future and standoff and remote and... Yeah, I think he probably feels vindicated about Iraq also mm -hmm. because he was one of those arguing that it was inevitable that it would break up into three parts and we should help that happen. And it, it sure doesn't seem stabilized and unified entity now. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, let's start with wordplay. Um, Tamara, why don't you kick us off? Okay, well, I, uh, I brought to the table today uh, an op-ed in The Hill, which is not my usual daily reading, um, The Hill being one of those... Uh, newspapers that is meant for congressional staffers to read, and usually the op-eds are about pending legislation. But this one is a bit of an exception. It's written by a colleague of mine at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, Lori Plotkin-Boghart. And it's, um, 
its headline is about the UAE, why the UAE's star is rising, UAE being the United Arab Emirates. But really what she's writing about here is how complicated it is for the United States to work with its uh, Muslim allies, notably its Arab Gulf allies, in the fight against radical Islamist extremism. Um, you know, they've all declared it uh, to be something they must combat. We have expressed our hope that they will be on the front lines of this ideological battle. Certainly we're not well placed to do it. Um, and yet at the same time, as Lori points out really well in this piece, a lot of these Gulf states um, approach the issue not through an ideological lens, but um, through a state interest lens. And while they condemn and oppose varieties of radical Islamism that, um, that oppose them and that harm their interests, in many cases, uh, they embrace or at least support other forms of radical Islamist groups. So Saudi Arabia, some would argue, um, is a regime that itself is rooted in an interpretation of Islam or Islamism, a political ideology rooted in Islam. Um, you know, Qatar, of course, supported some of the most radical groups fighting against Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, so the UAE, uh, the reason Lori's focused on them is because they seem to be the exception. They seem to be opposing Islamism in all its forms very consistently. And in fact, Lori's argument is they might even go a bit too far in that regard because they're opposing peaceful forms uh, of Islamism that could even help to be a counterweight against the terrorism that we're concerned with. So uh, summing up, it's a very complicated picture. It is not simply the case that we can rely on our Arab Muslim allies to fight an ideological battle in a way that will necessarily get us where we would like to be. So I have a question about that. When, when the UAE is said to oppose Islamism, uh, both domestically and not, uh, what, how then would one describe the ruling ideology or justification for rule of the various emirs who rule the UAE. I, you know, if they're not sort of Saudi, Wahhabi, uh, uh, Islamist leaders of that sort, where is their legitimacy for rule coming from? Well, I think that's a, a great question, and it's actually um, another element of what makes the United Arab Emirates unique, uh, <laughs> as its name suggests. It is a federation of seven emirates, seven tiny um, tribally organized and tribally led entities. And so there isn't a political ideology behind it. There is a political culture behind it um, of these family and tribal relationships going up to the emir or prince uh, who is the head of the ruling family of each of the seven emirates. And, um, they, they feel, I think, quite confident in that political culture and in the legitimacy of their rule. And they have worked, each of them in different ways across the Emirates, to um, build and sustain support for the ruling families by investing in human development. And this is actually, I think, something quite laudable about the Emirates is that um, a number of them have oil and gas wealth. Uh, that wealth is shared across the sevens. The richer ones subsidize the ones with fewer resources. 
and a huge amount of money has been invested in education, in higher education, in scientific research, and these are tiny, tiny populations, uh, the citizens, I should say. So um, the UAE works, uh, and it works without a ruling ideology. And is, is, is the, is, <clears throat> forgive my ignorance on this, but I mean, is the, is the history of why it works rooted in something much more recent and a choice they made, or is there something about these seven emirates and the way they've always existed that sort of leads them to be the, I don't know, the more reasonable, maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, but why does it work more than its neighbors? Is that just something that's a completely recent phenomenon, or is it more a deliberate choice? Or? Well, um, they didn't become politically independent, fully independent, until 1970. So this is fairly recent. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly these families existed and the tribal hierarchies existed long before. Um, I, I think it works partly because these are very homogenous populations. You know, there are other parts of the Gulf. Kuwait, for example, has a 30% Shia minority. Saudi Arabia, um, which, you know, rests on an alliance between uh, Wahhabi clerics and the Saudi ruling family still has at least a 20% Shia uh, minority and uh, and incorporates a lot of Sunni um, families that were not originally Wahhabi, um, although that's the ruling ideology. Uh, Bahrain, you know, is 60% Shia, 40% Sunni. The ruling family is Sunni. But the UAE, the populations, the citizens are very homogenous. Yeah, so that helps. But one thing I want to ask you, too, while we're on the subject of, of the Gulf allies, and I'm, I'm reporting a story this week <clears throat> that's touching on Qatar, which this week welcomed home a uh, uh, former al-Qaeda senior member who was, this is very interesting, serving in a federal prison, was a, a, a actually a, a in a U.S. prison, had been in a Navy brig in South Carolina, moved into a federal prison and was repatriated to Qatar. Which you're going to have to explain to me how he went from brig to federal prison. Yeah, that part I'm still a little bit... You probably know I more know about that, then, you're, talking about, you're, you're talking Omari. about Omari. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Who now has gone back to Qatar. And I, and I will just... But there's Well, there's one suspicion that I have in all of this, which is that there is some uh, hostage release that is imminent, and my spidey sense is telling me, does this play some sort of weird role in that? But it was extraordinary to me, A that a U.S. federal prisoner was released, not somebody from Gitmo or whatever. And, and it was also a, a B going back to Qatar, which, of course, is where we sent the Taliban 5 in exchange for Bergdahl. So maybe, Ben, you say, like, the quick backstory on that, but also, like, what is the game that Qatar seems to always be playing when it comes to prisoners and hostage release and all that kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. Well, so interesting. I mean, I... I I actually had missed that Almari had gone home. Um, it's like two days ago. Okay, yeah. so so this is what happens when you uh, end up in bed with the with the flu. Um, so Almari uh, was really a classic sleeper cell guy. He was here after nine eleven, uh, quite clearly on behalf of Al Qaeda, um, and was responsible for. Uh, appears to be sort of second wave attack kind of thing. He gets picked up, um, and along with Jose Padilla, he is the person arrested domestically who is not prosecuted in federal court initially, but dumped in a military brig in South Carolina. He was actually initially going to be prosecuted in federal court, but then um, they... Uh, dropped the case and and moved him to this brig. 
He stayed there for quite a while until I uh, believe the beginning of the Obama administration, whereupon he is moved back to federal court and reaches a plea deal. Um, and the plea deal, I believe, called for a 15-year sentence. That's right. Um, uh, which, if you redate it to time served, is probably just about up now, which is probably why he was uh, immediately deported. And that was the, it was time served, was the, the grounds. Right. So, um, so you don't think there's necessarily any link to a broader potential prisoner swap of some kind? Uh, probably, well, I mean, if he was not released early. I think he was released. You think early. he was released early? I think early? he was. So, look, because it hasn't been 15 years since he was picked up. No, but it's close. It's very. It's close. It's um, close. Yeah. And so, if you remove, you know, I mean, so one interesting question here is how early was he released? Uh, and the second is, look, I mean, I do think it is possible that. Um, you know, it, you couldn't just have somebody sprung from federal prison without a commutation, right? The, you can't, it's not like a Guantanamo detainee where the, the... There's just an executive action to let him go. Well, right. I mean, he's held at the discretion of the military under the laws of war, and he can be released at the discretion of the military. The Bureau of Prisons can't, you know just release somebody there's somebody's there pursuant to a sentence mm-hmm. so i think the 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 i mean we don't and we should look into this over the course of you know before our next episode but i think the, the probable answer is that some you know he got some credit for for good behavior he got and i and i would doubt without knowing any more um that there was a decision to release him as a favor to the Qatari government, because I think you would. They need, have been asking for his release. I too. think you, yeah, they've been asking for a long time. So I, why now? Right, but I think you would need a commutation to do that, and without a presidential action, I'm just not sure how that would happen. Yeah, I'm not either. But okay, uh, so we can report back next week yeah. on what might have been uh, the justification. Perhaps there was a reason of state for that presidential action, and not merely, you know, a a desire to do a favor for a, another government. But, but, but by which point, by the way, I will actually know something rather than <laughs> making it up, which but is what I may have, And I may have written so something informed. on it. Oh, read the good, Daily Beast. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll read the Daily Beast. Cross your fingers. Don't tell my editor yet. Um, but the very, very brief answer to your second question, Shane, about Qatar and sort of what, how is it that they can, ho- you know, that we will release um, Taliban to them uh, and things like that. What game are they playing? Basically, they are another small uh, Gulf emirate um, rooted in longstanding familial and tribal leadership. But they uh, are um, a country that has always managed to secure their place in the region by playing as many sides as they can. And so, you know, they host a major U.S. military base, but they also host the Taliban office. Um, they have been known to have Israeli uh, Israelis visit their country. Uh, they had an Israeli trade mission during the good old days of the Oslo process until the beginning of the Second Intifada. Uh, but Hamas uh, also has members of its senior leadership living in Qatar. And the fact that they have relationships with everybody is um, 
precisely what makes them both maddening sometimes to U.S. government officials, but also valuable. And the Bergdahl uh, release is a perfect example of that. They're like, they're like Switzerland, it seems. I mean, they're sort of that. <laughs> they're like Switzerland, <laughs> except instead of uh, anonymous bank accounts, they have sort of um, open arms to anyone's diplomatic mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fascinating. And open checkbooks. And open checkbooks, yes. too. <laughs> that, that helps, too. Um, okay, so, Ben, let's go on to uh, your wordplay next. Okay, well, so my wordplay is uh, um, also like your phone um, about Jim Comey. So I, I thought you were going to say your wordplay is encrypted. No, my mm. wordplay is not encrypted. <laughs> um, we should have called this the Jim Comey encryption. Yeah. Right. So about a week ago, I, I did something that people, you know, will find unlike me. I took a, a shot at Glenn Greenwald on Lawfare. You? Yeah. Shocking. Shocking. So Glenn Greenwald has for, for years now railed against mainstream media reliance on what he called uh, corruptly granting anonymity to senior administration officials to disseminate their inflammatory claims with no responsibility, no accountability, sorry. Um, and I was struck by um, the fact that his new publication, The Intercept, had finally found an organization worthy of sufficient trust to give its senior officials anonymity for the asking so that they could advance their claims with no accountability. And that organization uh, was Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Here is what um, reporter Jeremy Scahill wrote. Uh, earlier in the afternoon, a source within AQAP gave The Intercept a separate message praising the attack on Charlie Hebdo, uh, etc. And then he says, the source who demanded anonymity because the group has not yet released an official statement also told The Intercept that two images in the latest issue of its publication, Inspire, contained a clue, etc., etc. So in other words... AQ, the Intercept here had done for AQAP exactly the thing that Greenwald had criticized uh, many times in very bitter terms, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other papers for doing. So I sort of took a shot at him for that. Uh, he was unrepentant on Twitter. Um, and I thought that was the end of it until a few days later, on January 14th, um, the New York Times not to be outdone, also quoted a, an a anonymous source from AQAP in a story, uh, I think, by the way, a much more defensible story. It was not simply, you know, quoting AQAP's propaganda. Um, it said a member of AQAP who spoke to the New York Times on condition of anonymity said the joint timing of the two operations was a result of the friendship between Mr. Hulibali and the Koachi brothers, not of common planning between the Qaeda group and the Islamic State. So there wasn't a sort of no news component of this. But still, here is the New York Times, you know, with uh, treating AQAP exactly the way it had treated the U.S. government. Um, Jim Comey noticed this uh, and did to the New York Times somewhat what I had done to Glenn. Uh, he sends a letter to the New York Times, which reads as follows. Your decision to grant anonymity to a spokesperson for al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula 
so he could clarify the role of his group in assassinating innocents, including a wounded police officer, and distinguish it from the assassination of other innocents in Paris in the name of another group of terrorists, is both mystifying and disgusting. I fear you have lost your way and urge you to reconsider allowing your newspaper to be used by those who have murdered so many and work every day to murder more. Um, the New York Times, like Glenn, is unrepentant. Uh, the foreign editor, uh, uh, or, or one of the, the foreign editors said, quote, the individual quoted anonymously has for several weeks provided accurate insight and information into the thinking and actions of AQAP. The material was generally central to the news, in one case noting that AQAP and the Islamic State had not jointly planned the attacks in Paris. So uh, all of this seems to me to raise the very interesting question, was it, is it right for uh, Glenn Greenwald and, and Jeremy Scahill and The Intercept to be uh, quoting, giving an anonymity to AQAP sources? Is it right for the New York Times to? And is the New York Times, uh, and, and is AQAP and the US government similarly situated in with respect to the press in terms of being able to be granted anonymity in order to give background and float ideas to journalists. And I'm going to answer yes to the first couple of questions. And you know, I <clears throat> I don't have any sources within AQAP. But Shane, I, why not? I know I really shouldn't. I should not reveal that in public. <laughs> um, but like I have to say, I find this debate a, a little bit mystifying insofar as. Look, there are there have been journalists who have sources in criminal organizations, in the mafia, in gangs, uh, in all kinds of unsavory capitals where we uh, don't share interests, uh, where in places that we have been at war. I don't see why having a source in a terrorist organization, vile and disgusting though it may be, and responsible for killing innocent people, automatically disqualifies them from the same grant of anonymity that journalists give to sources all the time. We're not condoning what they did. It's a matter of obtaining the information to report about why they did it and to try and illuminate that. Um, and, and, I, and I don't think that, you know, I think Comey's off base in saying that the New York Times has lost its way. Uh, and I'm not really sure what position of authority he speaks about on that question of journalistic ethics, but that's fine. We can all have an opinion. Um, you know, the FBI has confidential sources. They put them in indictments. And I'm conflating issues here a bit, but 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 no, I mean I don't think it's at all problematic to to grant anonymity to someone whether regardless of whether they're a terrorist. Yeah, you know, I mean I think you're absolutely right to make the point that journalists look for and rely on sources in all kinds of organizations, and you know why should they treat Al Qaeda differently from a gang or uh, or a mafia organization that they're trying to understand and report on. But I, I also think that it's an interesting question, and, and Ben, you sort of referred to this in introducing the text, that maybe AQAP, maybe these are authorized leaks. They're not um, just sources that have been cultivated, but AQAP is now embracing a strategy of speaking anonymously to Western media, uh, whereas before they always did it on their own through audio and video messages at a time and place of their choosing. And and if that's the case, that's, to me, a very fascinating phenomenon, it, it, it raises a couple of questions. Um, one is whether uh, 
Western journalists talking to these sources um, can serve a function beyond illuminating, because after all, they could just be getting spun, right? Right. Um, which which what, never happens in Washington. Right, that never, ever happens. Um, no, but but maybe by talking to these guys, reporting on what they say, and then these guys see the reaction to what they said in the paper, and they're, talk, they're also hearing from the journalists what the journalists may be hearing from other people, so that it, it's a way of, um, there, it is in a sense a channel between this organization and uh, what we m might call the civilized world. And, you know, if AQAP is thinking hard enough about how it's perceived in the West or how it wants to send messages to the West, does that suggest to us that over the long, long, long term and once it has faced a great deal of defeat on the battlefield, um, it might become less horrifically violent, more political in some sense. I, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, look, I don't mean to suggest that this we is We incorporate them into the political process? No, not at all. That's <laughs> not what I'm saying. But I am thinking about precedents like the PLO. You know, mm. Western journalists talked to the PLO. Western journalists exactly. talked yes. to the IRA. And Western journalists have sources in Hamas. Right. And, and these are actors that engage in horrific violence, but they also have political interests and they have political motivations. And the notion that we should treat them as somehow, yes, they're beyond the pale, but that doesn't mean that they are wholly irrational, bent entirely on destruction and death, and have no, no rational interests that we could possibly comprehend. To me, that doesn't serve the effort of defeating them. So I, I want to push back on this a little bit because I... I don't actually know. Oh, you would take Jim Comey's side in this argument. Well, so, so I, I actually noted FBI apologist. Noted ben FBI <laughs> apologist Ben Wittes. Even I, the liberal Ben Wittes. I, I don't. It's been a long time since anyone said that. <laughs> um, I don't really know how I feel about this issue, and uh, but I do think I want to. I want to push Shane on one thing, but I also think your point, Tammy, that. Um, AQA, the, the, the two stories may not be similarly situated, um, is an important one. So in the first story, um, in The Intercept, the, uh, the anonymity was protecting nothing more than propaganda. So the, the statement, this is the statement for which uh, anonymity was granted. The lions of jihad have stood. The followers of Muhammad, peace be upon him, may have not, never forgotten do not look for links or affiliation with jihadi fronts. It is enough. They are Muslims. They are Mujahideen. This is the jihad of the Ummah. So, France, are you ready for more attacks? So it, yeah, so why didn't Scahill go back to him and say, now why won't you put that on the record? Right. So, so, so this seems to me very much like, you know, the flack for an agency saying, hey, you know, we're... we're you know, Senator so and so is really wrong when you say when he <laughs> says that uh, this about our agency, um, and that seems to me just what Greenwald has criticized when the national security establishment does it. It's I, I actually agree with him that the press often gives too much latitude to the national security establishment to float things like that. And I certainly can't see the argument for giving AQAP latitude to do it. Um, on the other hand, the um, 
Now, what Scahill could reasonably say in response was, hey, this was a claim of responsibility for the attack. Um, and, you know, it was a, uh, it, and that's an important news that, event. That was um, newsworthy enough to justify granting anonymity. Right. The New York Times story, by contrast, seems to me to be, um, you know, developing a very specific news point. Which about it, there not being a link. About, right, about how these two uh, organizations were and were not related in the context of this attack. And so it seems to me a little bit more, uh, you know, different and arguably more justified in, in the sense of, you know, developing a very specific point rather than putting out propaganda. On the other hand, the actual news value is less than the news value of the claim of responsibility in the first place. So... But then on the broader point, so I want to push you, Shane. Uh, I gave, I suggested to, when, when, when Jack Goldsmith was, think, was commenting on this, I presented him the following hypothetical, which he then wrote into his piece, um, which was, what if the New York Times said, a source within the child uh, exploitation and pornography ring uh, told the New York Times that, yes, the group was responsible for the first of the three first three kidnappings of the of the eight year olds, but it had nothing whatsoever to do with the fourth. Um, what is the source? What is the reporter's obligation confronted with, you know, that situation? Is that something the New York Times would or should put in their paper? Wait, wait, just so I understand the premise of the question that those kidnapped children are still uh, at large and must be found, so it's a ticking bomb scenario? I don't think you need to make it a ticking bomb situation. Just there's a child pornography ring. I see. You're wired into it enough to have a good source in it. He's provided active, accurate intelligence on the prior activities of the group. Um, And, you know, should you be giving anonymity to people under those circumstances, or you know, how do you feel about that? I, I don't see any difference, uh, and you know, I, and well, I don't see any difference either. Which well, is, right, right. I mean, and, you know, as far as what the New York Times would or wouldn't do, I mean, I take your point that maybe there are some things that the New York Times would find so unconscionable and objectionable, or that the readers would find offensive that they might not grant anonymity to it. Although it seems to me, slaughtering a dozen people in Paris pretty much goes to the top. So it looks like this is the new standard for granting anonymity. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I go back to my original point about journalists having unsavory sources who are criminals and who don't pretend not to be criminals, uh, and it is not our obligation uh, or responsibility to try and assist law enforcement with finding them or to, uh, you know, to 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 shield them in any way. I, I get that, but like, there is this sort of tradecraft issue that's at play here about. And I don't like it either. I don't like having to grant so much anonymity to so many sources, but sometimes it makes it impossible uh, to report unless you are willing to do that. And, and you know, and there's an assumption there that the the fundamental objective, the mission of journalism, is informing, and that if you need to grant anonymity in order to inform, um, that you know that it that there's a cost benefit, but that you have a mission, and. And I actually think, Ben, that your your scenario underscores the point I was making. Imagine you're the NYPD and you're 
banging your heads against the wall trying to understand the connection between the first three kidnappings and the fourth because they're all eight-year-olds. They must all be the same organization perpetrating it. And then the New York Times reports that uh, this organization claims the first three but, but says they weren't, uh, they had nothing to do with the fourth. That's actually useful information for the NYPD, assuming it's accurate, assuming the journalist um, did a good job of vetting. So that's helpful. Understanding, you know, garnering information from the press is an intelligence gathering tool. The press is not, um, its mission is not to help the intelligence community, but it provides information that can help the intelligence community as well as the public. And I don't think that's a dismissible component. And, and, I, and I have to say, too, is, and I, I, I agree with what you just said. <clears throat> and I'm not, I don't want to give the impression, and I don't think I am, but just to be clear, that you have to take off as a reporter your, your humanity and sort of hang that on the hook by the door and somehow pretend we're just objective sort of, you know, transmitters of information. That, that's ridiculous. I mean, there is no such thing as object, pure objectivity in journalism, and I don't think we should be striving for it, at least not in the way that it's often presented uh, as what objective journalism is. But, you know, to the extent that we have humanity, and we, and we I think all people who've been reporting on the events in Paris, including myself, would like to see these people brought to justice and to see what they did under better understood. One of the big questions that my anonymous sources in the intelligence community have been grappling with is whether or not ISIS and AQAP have formed some sort of alliance. What 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 exactly were the instructions to these these two brothers? What are sort of these pieces of the puzzle? And to the extent that I, as a reporter, can ferret out that information, if it maybe helps the intelligence community, I, as a human being, actually feel pretty good about that. Um, and so it's not my primary objective to try and do the CIA's work for them, but geez, if something I report sort of tips somebody off and goes, wait, this makes me pull this thread a little bit more, great, then I've done a service to my reader. Okay, so message, I'll close on this note, message to Jim Comey, um, Shane is not only uh, hoarding scary information in an encrypted phone, uh, his data at rest is not only terrifying, but that probably includes anonymous sources from AQAP. Yeah, well, I, I can neither confirm nor deny that. I couldn't possibly comment, as a certain favorite television character of mine likes to say. All right, so my wordplay. Um, so I am going to encourage our readers, to, first of all, to go read what I'm about to summarize, because it's, it's, it's long and I don't have time to do it justice here. But um, this is a brief... Uh, op-ed slash essay that was written uh, in the notices of the American Mathematics Society um, by a guy named Michael Wertheimer, which probably is not a name that most of our, re our listeners are familiar with. But Mike um, <clears throat> was formerly the director of research at the National Security Agency. Um, he held a very senior position in the DNI's office, uh, and as has been reported in my book, and I don't know about anywhere else, um, was one of the very few people who was first read into the so-called warrantless wiretapping program at NSA just after 9-11. In fact, Mike has spoken very um, passionately publicly about his experience after 9-11 um, when he was one of the people at NSA who felt deeply personal, personally responsible for um, the intelligence failures uh, of the NSA not uh, translating the intercepted communications that it had on al-Qaeda and actually went into, he talks about this, went into a, a pretty considerable depression 
um, which we, he was finally snapped out of by his father, who was a Holocaust survivor, who said, I need you to go back to work and protect the country. Um, wow. it's, it's an amazing story. And I say all that as preface is to say that in my experience, Mike is probably one of the more honorable and forthright and genuine and articulate people I've heard speak in the intelligence community. And I don't just say that to, to, to be a nice guy, but it's important for the context of what Mike wrote about. So he was writing a response to um, one of the big Snowden leak stories that came out about NSA's so-called efforts to undermine encryption, which is a phrase that I have used and others have used as well. And what this stems back to is a, an encryption algorithm uh, that the NSA was helping to develop uh, uh, around about 2006, I guess this was. This is the NES. This is the one that came out that NIST did with the um, um, the um, elliptical uh, encryption, encrypted curve, and it, got, it involved something called a random number generator. And what happened was, to make a long story short, um, this algorithm came out, and it has what could be described as a trapdoor in it that would allow someone or some organization with certain pieces of information to effectively undermine the encryption and unscramble anything, uh, the message that it was trying to encrypt. Now, how this was portrayed, and I still think fairly so, was a, a, a tool, a way to give the NSA essentially a backdoor into a very popular encryption standard, giving them a way in that no one else had. Um, and it was a, a charge that the NSA simply did not address, at least not in any persuasive way. And why does that matter? Because the NSA is a code-making and a code-breaking agency. Um, its reputation in the cryptological community is, uh, has historically been quite good. It is, it is a very important, legally enforced relationship that they have with the National Institutes of Standards and Technology. NSA is required to work with NIST to write and evaluate encryption standards. Uh, NSA is responsible for protecting government information that's encrypted. They obviously have a role in protecting public information that gets encrypted too by their work with NIST. All this to say that within the, sort of the crypto community, and especially within the mathematics community, and the NSA employs more mathematicians than any organization, I believe, in the world, certainly in the United States, this revelation about the encryption undermining was a massive rift in this community. Um, there have been uh, notices written in this same journal that Mike is writing in one that uh, was titled, AMS Should Sever Ties with the NSA. I mean, you're talking about now this organization, NSA, being seen by many in the mathematics uh, community as, as, as treacherous, as devious, as, you know, as a place that's been harboring ill intent. Um, and um, that in and of itself is a pretty dramatic break because the NSA probably can't afford to be losing mathematicians. They need them to do their, their work. Mike, though, really came out and, and defended this in a way that I've just never seen anyone do it. And I just want to read one kind of key passage in this. Um, he says, with hindsight, NSA should have ceased supporting the algorithm immediately after security researchers discovered the potential for a trapdoor, which he notes that they did. That one statement right there, to come from the former director of research for the NSA, someone who was formerly in charge of the technology for the signals intelligence intercept portions of NSA, I found to be astonishing saying that he defends this as saying it is not what you think. We didn't deliberately insert this. I'm not going to go into the technical details. People can read them for themselves. Suffice to say that he's saying the idea that we sought out to deliberately undermine this to have a secret trapdoor that only we could use was misportrayed. That's not what happened, he's saying. And he goes on to say, in truth, I can think of no better way to describe our failure to drop support for the algorithm as anything other than regrettable. 
The cost of the DOD to deploy a new algorithm were not an adequate reason to sustain our support for a questionable one. Indeed, we support NIST's decision to remove the algorithm. Furthermore, we realize that our advocacy for the algorithm, algorithm casts suspicion on the broader body of work that NSA has done to promote security standards. Indeed, some colleagues have extrapolated this single action to allege that NSA has a broader agenda to, quote, undermine Internet encryption, end quote. A fair reading of our track record speaks otherwise. Nevertheless, we understand that NSA must be much more transparent in its standards work and act according to that transparency. Um, I just found that to be a remarkably forthright wow, and, and, yeah. and, you know, fair defense. And I wish this was written before I had done my book. I don't think it would have remarkably changed my assessment of what NSA was up to. And I think he's not necessarily addressing other potential efforts to undermine encryption and security and things like hoarding zero-day vulnerabilities. Ben, you did an interview with Ann Newberger from NSA where she didn't, she sort of coyly responded to the allegations about undermining internet encryption. But I encourage people to go read this because, I mean, A, Mike is a straight shooter. I believe him when he says this is the defense. I don't think this is the end of the story. But I also just really, I mean, kind of want to throw a dart at the NSA. Why didn't this agency come out and defend this in this way before? Mm-hmm. It is it is a was a massively missed opportunity to do that. Okay, so a few things. Um, I'm going to say this in my role as one of the principal apologists for the NSA. Um, no, I'm joking. Um, a few things. First of all, it is really important to understand as. You certainly do, but a lot of people don't. How conflicted NSA is in its role with respect to encryption. NSA is both a signals intelligence agency and it's also what's called an information assurance agency. That is, it's responsible for the integrity of all U.S. government communications. Um, and so when NSA confronts a problem like internet security, uh, they have an impossible conflict of interest, which is that their job is to make sure that the internet is absolutely secure against all actors except them, against whom it is absolutely insecure. And And there's no firewall within the organization, right, between these two functions? Well, so they are done by different parts of the organization, but ultimately there, there can't be a firewall because the same vulnerabilities as, as they arise, and vulnerabilities are much more often discovered than they are engineered, which is, I take it, part of yeah. the point here. But when a vulnerability comes up, the immediate question that the discoverer of that vulnerability has is, are we going to patch this or notify the manufacturer so that they can patch it, or are we going to exploit this? And if you're responsible for both, um, you know, the, that, that problem is, uh, it comes up over and over and over again, and you're going to have one division, the IADP, the Information Assurance people, who are going to say, "Hey, we've got an internet, um, you know, we've got an internet to protect. You know, let's let's get this thing patched." And you're going to have another group of people, the SIGINT people, who are going to say, "Ooh, you know, Vladimir Putin uses that particular program." And um, so there have been a number of proposals over the years, most recently by the President's Advisory Commission on NSA stuff, to separate into different agencies the Information Assurance 
mission from the signals intelligence mission. And the theory is that the NSA shouldn't have this giant conflict of interest. Right, they should have to have the arguments in the interagency like everybody else does. Well, so, so I actually think I actually think it's good that it's in one agency because you would not relieve the U.S. government's um, conflict of interest one iota by putting it in a different agency. What you would do is you would reduce the fact, you know, the day-to-day -day, uh, coexistence of the two missions in somewhat the same way that, you know, that people in the State Department have to both, you know, represent... Uh, you know, have to both interface with, you know, India and with Pakistan and, you know, at the same time, right? And they have to deal with U.S. interests, com competing U.S. interests uh, in interaction with one another. And I think putting it in a different agency is probably not a great idea. Well, you know, I guess I don't accept that analogy, but I also think that the, the the two missions that you're describing within the NSA are are they're not simply conflicting interests or conflicting missions. They have conflicting audiences, yeah. um, and one of those audiences on the standard setting side is the American people, and and that's what makes it. And you can say, oh well, the security interest is also on behalf of the American people, and of course it is, but it's not direct. Um, there's a a consumer component on the standard side that I think makes it far more complicated. And and I could see a lot of value in forcing... The, it's not that you eliminate the conflict of interest for the U.S. government by separating into two entities, but you make the conflict of interest much more explicit and you require a transparent conversation about it rather than letting it sit within one agency of the federal government that ends up making some tricky, complicated balance, but its rationale isn't necessarily shared with the rest of the government that then has to live with the consequences. I, I think it's really interesting, Shane, that he said there the NSA has to be more transparent mm -hmm. on its standards <clears throat> work. Yeah. Because you to be more transparent in one part of your work while the whole point of the other part of your work is to avoid transparency. Yeah. It's, that seems to me such a fundamental conflict that it's, it's not something that you can overcome simply by, by saying, no, really, we have good intent. And I think that it, it, I, I do not know whether or not, and he has not told me, whether or not Mike's view is widely shared within his former agency. Um, which we should note he spent much of his entire career and he feels a great deal of loyalty and affection for it. I would guess it's not widely shared, or at the very least, that this is a some, this is a quite controversial position. And I think even his own description of how this all went down supports that. I mean, the way Mike describes it, the al the weakness in the algorithm, if I if I am reading him correctly, and I think I am, was basically something that the NSA put in to make sure that it worked for DoD purposes the way they needed it to, and was not meant to sort of provide a trapdoor into communications that were used outside DOD. And if that's true and it was really that trivial, then why not just drop it? Or why not go back and fix it? And it just leads to this idea that, no, what you were really about was, in fact, putting a trapdoor inside an encryption standard, and you just didn't want anyone to know about it. Look, so I, And I don't know whether... So Mike, long, Mike's as, a Boy Scout, but I don't know that the NSA is full of a lot of Boy Scouts, I guess is what I'm saying. As long as you are the NSA, 
you are never going to be able, and you shouldn't be able to because you're a signals intelligence agency, you're not going to be able to go to a group of uh, people who are interested in abstract security goods and say, no, we only have the best of intentions. Because in fact, you don't only have the best of intentions, at least from a pure security point of view. Part of what you do is break into things and steal things. And you need vulnerabilities in order to do that. And I think, you know, I, I think there is no way that the U.S. government in some form will not have a group of people who's, who are working on breaking encryption systems and compromising encryption systems. And there's similarly no way you're not going to take some of your best mathematical and engineering expertise and try to create good systems. And I think that's just part of the uh, the pain of being the U.S. government, whether you do it inside of one agency or outside of it. Um, I do know, um, and the, the Ann Neuberger interview that you mentioned is a good example of this, that, that figuring out how to talk about this issue um, of the relationship between uh, the NSA and standard setting entities uh, has been one of the most painful components of the whole post Snowden process. You know, it's, it's, I will say that this uh, last part of our conversation makes me think that maybe the State of the Union wasn't entirely boring on national security issues because when I um, heard the president give his little cybersecurity paragraph very close to the end, I thought, God, I can't even understand what he's talking about. He's linking somehow our ability to preserve national security and the security of our kids' identities on Facebook. Like, what is that about? But I think I'm understanding through this conversation that the NSA actually works on both of those things. Yeah, well, I mean, and it's, the NSA has the responsibility to protect and defend and, and, and to attack at the same time, right? And And I think that so the president's incoherent paragraph about cybersecurity reflected the incoherence of the NSA's mission. Well, I don't think the president's had a particularly coherent policy on, on, on cybersecurity after Snowden, which is surprising because he seemed to have one coming in. I don't know what happened. Nor do I think the NSA's mission is incoherent, but it is conflicted. It's conflicted, yeah. Okay. Exactly, exactly. So, and, you know, and I, and I will just close this by saying, if NSA is listening, you know, We've had, we've had this conversation before about the need for the agency to do a better job at presenting its case and its PR. And, you know. Come send a guest on, on rational send, security. Send a guest or, like, seriously, find more people like Mike Wertheimer. Because, I mean, I'm just going to say it. You know, when you think about the kind of people who you want on that wall, you know, Mike's one of the good guys. I really believe that. So, there, I'm taking off my objective hat. And he's a really good communicator. God, why didn't they make this argument a long time ago? Um, anyway, I'm not saying I would have changed my mind, but it would have been good. All right, object lesson. Ben is holding up his object, and it's terrifying. I'm not going to lie. I am wearing a, a Guy Fox mask. You are. It's a are you quite an elaborate one, actually. It's a very beautiful. Uh, <laughs> you are bla legion. <laughs> black and gold. I am legion. I, should I expect, expect you. me. Um, it's black and gold, not white and black. It is. Um, it. Uh, no, I'm not planning to blow up the British Parliament. I did. I have a, a special affinity with Guy Fox and Guy Fox Day. Guy Fox Day is, among other things, my birthday. Yay. And uh, November 5th, remember, remember. Um, and I have been dismayed over the last several years 
as what I consider to be the perfect holiday for national security law, which is a holiday that commemorates the failure of non-state actors to destroy great entities of sovereign power, has turned into a holiday celebrating um, anarchism and, um, and the wanton uh, destruction of uh, institutions of power. So you're saying uh, anonymous are, are cultural imperialists. There's a, appropriated your day and the symbolism. So, so I just want to say a few things about Guy Fawkes. First of all, Guy Fawkes was not an anarchist. Guy Fawkes was, wanted a restoration of Catholicism in England. He supported one authoritarian religious culture uh, of the time over the reigning authoritarian religious culture of the time. Secondly, uh, Guy Fawkes was not um, a proponent of fun pranks you know, <laughs> delivery, you know, delivered at the powerful. He tried to assassinate the king by blowing up the entire parliament in session. So he was a, a, a attempted kind of Taliban-like mass murderer. Um, he's sort of like the Boko Haram of his of his day. Um, and um, third, um, you know, I think the the people who walk around in Guy Fox masks uh, tend not really to know about you know, A, what the holiday is or what it is traditionally celebrated, which is a fierce kind of anti-Catholic, um, sometimes very bigoted anti-Catholicism in Britain. Um, and so traditionally you burn effigies of the Pope on Guy Fawkes Day as well as burning Guy Fawkes. And so this is a, it's a very interesting and complicated holiday um, that uh, has lightened up over the years in the way that sort of Halloween has also lightened up. Um, and, you know, now is sort of the, the July 4th of Britain. But uh, from, from my point of view, one thing it certainly shouldn't be is a, a, a anonymous day. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a very impassioned argument. I'm going to think, you know, I'm going to think differently about this now and not forget your birthday this year like I did this year, last year. Um, so I have, I brought in a little sign this is one of my favorite, favorite signs. Wow. And I And I hang this in my office, and I'm bringing it to my new office. Um, this is from the East Coast Hotel Association in Norfolk, Virginia, it says. Oh, the East Coast Hotel Association in Norfolk, Virginia. It says, street girls bringing sailors into hotel must pay for room in advance. I found this at a flea market in Lawrence, Kansas. I have no idea if it's authentic. I choose to believe it is. And it says... Norfolk, Virginia. Right. So, so we're talking is, course, sailors. Yeah. Sailors and prostitutes. And first of all, I just think this is absolutely delightful. And it looks kind of old. And I think it's hilarious. Um, but I just sort of think... I, I, Why did the street girls have to pay? Why did well, the this sailors is, pay? Okay, this is actually what I was going to bring up. To me... I'm like, all right. I mean, aside from it's national security because it's sailors and it's Norfolk and whatever. That's enough. Um, <laughs> but to me, it's like this is the oldest world's oldest profession. I like that it's sort of it's giving them the agency. Do you know what I mean? It's like you know oh. they're in charge. Yeah, yeah. This but is I do not see about empowering street girls. It's this probably, is probably not. It's probably definitely not about that. Well, okay. They're supposed to pay for time plus expenses. When, and, so, and this is this has also made me think that maybe there was a time in Norfolk. Was it like were the street girls running the show, 
No, I or think, I think it, it really probably has more to do with the fact that the relationship, the ongoing business relationship, is between the hotel and the street girls. Yes, <laughs> and right. and so yes. the hotel knows who its clients are, yes. and they're actually not the sailors. But that's just a guess. I I kind of like that, but I mean, you know, it's it's and presumably the street girls would know the terrain and not the sailors. But um, yeah, but it's it's, it's world's oldest. Now, now what happens? This is a public-private partnership. What happens right if here. the street girls bring a guy Fox? Bring Guy Fox it, into the hotel. It doesn't say anything about anonymity. Yeah. Nor does it say that they have to pay in advance. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. All right, Tammy, your object lesson. Okay. Well, my object, please don't boo at me, is a little bit abstract. Um, boo. It's the snow, which has oh. been falling outside, and um, and and I. I actually did bring some in on my collar, of course, but it melted while we've been sitting here having this wonderful conversation. But I, I wanted to, um, I, I've been thinking about the snow a lot, and Ben knows this about me. I complain about the cold every winter, constantly, uh-huh. so much that my entire family makes fun of me. I am a cold wimp. I hate the cold. I hate the winter. I hate the gray. I hate the weather. But. Um, over the last week or so, as I've been complaining about the cold weather, I have also um, been very grateful uh, that I um, don't that that all I have to do is complain about it because my inbox um, has been flooded over the last week or two uh, with photos and stories about Syrian refugees who have been braving uh, a very cold winter um, in Jordan. And, uh, and in Lebanon and in Turkey, and some really, really sad and miserable um, news about uh, young children who have frozen to death in these refugee camps. Only a, a minority of the refugees um, in Zatari camp, for example, I believe, are in any kind of um, permanent housing. And so they're really exposed, and uh, the UN has been pleading for donations because uh, they they have only a tiny, tiny fraction of what they need to provide basic care for these refugees. And so as I was walking back through the snow to come to the taping today and starting to grumble to myself about how cold it was and how much I hate the winter, I stopped and thought to myself, I am a lot better off than some people, and I am grateful. Yeah, I think we all are. Um, well said. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Well, on that note, a hopeful note, I hope, for for better times ahead. Uh, That is it for Episode 3 of Rational Security. I'm Shane Harris. uh, And on behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman-Wittis and Ben Wittis, thank you for joining us. Uh, Please follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook also at Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always. And... Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 